Okay, we're in uh, Ruth chapter 3 again, page 223. We'll read the whole chapter, but we're going to take up with uh, verse 9. That's where we left off two weeks ago. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. Ruth and Boaz at the threshing floor. (laughs) Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with those young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. That's a great sentence should memorize that as the one verse you've memorized in the Bible. (laughs) He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant or your cover. For you are a redeemer. The Hebrew is goel. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I'm a redeemer, yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Thus the reading of God's word. Let's pray. 
Lord, these passages are fascinating. Your providence is fascinating. And we pray that you would give us wisdom as we search out what the Holy Spirit might uh, teach us from this passage, and how we might know more of Christ from this passage, how we might grow in your grace, Lord, through this passage. Uh, we pray, thanking you that you are with us and that you intend to enrich your people, even through frail instruments such as I. We pray, help us in our weakness, O oh Lord Jesus. Amen. So perhaps a little review is in order, uh, being two weeks away from uh, Ruth. But just to rehearse what had happened, what has happened so far, Naomi had gone with her husband, Elimelech, her two boys, Kilion and Malon, to Moab because of the famine. Elimelech died bad. Then the two sons, she's just got the two sons, and they each marry Moabite girls. And by the way, Moab was uh, not... Moab had tempted Israel in the wilderness. Moab was bad news. Uh, this, to hear someone went to Moab would kind of cause the rankles to rise for anyone hearing this story. Uh, it'd be like, Moab? And they married Moab girls. You know, it'd be that kind of feel for this. Well, then both of her sons die. She's just got the two daughter-in-laws. And she urges both of them, insists repeatedly with both of them that they return to their mother's home, which is the safer thing for them to do, uh, the smart thing for them to do. Orpah, one of the girls, finally leaves to go home. But then Ruth, in one of the most memorable and uh, beautiful statements in all of ancient literature, you know it well, uh, where you, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live, or the word lodge, which we find in our past, that I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, there I will die. I will be buried there, right beside you. So you will never leave me. And in fact, after we die, I'm going to be right beside you. And she says, may the Lord do terrible things to me. And more than that, basically, in the Hebrew, anything else he can think of. If I don't, if, if anything but death separates us. So she pledges her, her allegiance to Naomi, returns with Naomi. Then there's this little uh, spicy tidbit at the beginning of chapter two where they describe Boaz briefly, that he's this noble, uh, well-to-do man in Israel. Just a sentence. Then Ruth says, how about I go in the fields and... Glean, And you know, gleaning is very hard work. They, they do the reaping and then right after is the gleaning part. And that's hard work. So she's gleaning and the text says, and she happened to go into the field of Boaz, which we know is God's providence that brought her into that field. Uh, he, Boaz asks about her, is told that she's the Moabite girl that everybody's talking about that came back with Naomi She's already got a good reputation because of her commitment to be with Naomi, uh, a very dangerous situation as a foreigner to come in like this. 
and they meet up. He shows her kindness, invites her to stay with his group and stay on his land. And she is amazed. And she says, why are you showing me such favor? And in chapter two, verse 11, he says, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has fully been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. All this was ahead of her, right? This is, he's just saying, I know all about you. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Fantastic moment here. And a kind of exposition on her poetic statement of her allegiance to uh, Naomi, that in effect, she was taking refuge under the wings of Yahweh by coming to Israel. Well, they, she works the whole season with Boaz. And if you're reading it, you kind of think, come on, Boaz, show us your move, right? It's right here. She's here. When are you going to make your move? But Boaz doesn't make his move. Uh, he may have been concerned about the fact that there was another kinsman who was closer to her and had the privilege slash responsibility of being her Goel or her redeemer. So he didn't want to, you know, thrust him aside or jump ahead of this guy. He needs to make a move. Maybe he's thinking also from what he said in his reaction to her uh, wanting him, uh, he may not have wanted to foist himself on her being an older man. He may not have wanted to hear, ew, no, I'm sorry. I just can't do that. You know, I mean, that's what I would think if I was an older man. <laughs> if I was an older man, not, not that I am, but <laughs> I love when somebody, some young guy in his 30s is describing something to me of something he did. He ran into in a, a store and he says, there is this old man in the store. And I'll say, like my age, <laughs> and he'll say, well, well, I don't think of you as oh, Yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> So Naomi is not one to take a back seat. So she's basically, Ruth, let's get this thing going, okay? So she plots this, uh, this threshing hole plan. And since Ruth followed her instructions to the T, Boaz and Ruth, these two people of great integrity, had to really navigate a delicate situation that was cooked up by Naomi. But they were both into it on the threshing floor. She uh, under uh, at his feet. Um, it was risky. It was uncertain. So much hung in the balance. Uh, his reaction could have been sound the alarm. There's a woman on the threshing floor. You know, who knows what would have happened. Um, but... Naomi trusted Boaz's character. He, she knew he wouldn't take advantage of her. And it's fascinating how Ruth and Boaz had been exposed to each other's character uh, those many weeks in this public setting, day after day after day. 
And her actions here seem to indicate that she was drawn to his character and his kindness. Apparently, as she was drawn to Naomi, being originally a pagan Moabite, but she was brought to love Yahweh because of the kindness and goodness of Naomi uh, and perhaps her whole family. She apparently wanted to be under his, his wing. So we get to verse 9. Because she, uh, at midnight, the man was startled. Verse 8, behold, a woman lay at his feet. Uh, and it says the man to indicate things are dark. You know, you can't quite, quite make out who's who here. He can't see who this is. Um, and here is a surprise. The author intends Ruth's statement to surprise his readers. Because in verses five and six, it says that she, she said, I'll do all that you tell me to do. And then it says in verse six, she did exactly what she, Naomi, had told her to. Um, so this point, though, Naomi said, he will tell you what to do. So just wait, just wait there. She didn't wait, right? She didn't wait. Um, she Immediately, and I think at this point she's trying to explain herself, trying to explain what she's doing here. But she does more than that. She actually is asking him to marry her. That's basically what's happening here. It's, it's not our, the way we would do it, but she's just basically saying, what are you doing? Who are you? I'm your servant, Ruth. Will you marry me? You know, it's just... If you hear it like that, it, it sounds very different. But the assumption is that in marriage, the man's garment covers the woman's nakedness, whereas in adultery, which is stated all through uh, Leviticus, it's uncovering the nakedness of another person. That's the way they describe adultery. But marriage is covering. And his response to her statement shows that's exactly how he took it. Because he says, wow, you want to marry me and not one of the younger men. You see, that was his immediate reaction. He, he took it as a marriage proposal, so to speak. And there is a still a marriage custom among Arabs today, uh, one of the commentators says, where a man symbolically takes his wife by throwing a garment corner over her. And it obviously symbolizes his protection of her. And his taking her to be one with himself forever. And you recall what we read in chapter 2, verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. It's kind of like Ruth is saying, hey, you do it. You do it. You be his instrument of blessing. Yes, I've come to take refuge under the wings of Yahweh. Hey, Boaz, you be those wings. You cover me. You're the Redeemer. You're the Goel. Entirely countercultural for a woman to pro propose to a man, for a younger person to propose to an older person, for a field hand to propose to the field owner, right? It goes against everything. But that's what she did. 
It seems like a spontaneous response uh, to his question uh, to quickly avoid misunderstanding. And she went for broke. She went all out in her request, proposing marriage. And she assumed in this that Boaz, as a goel, as a redeemer, you know, that means a kinsman who uh, can take up the concerns of a relative. Uh, maybe they've lost land and he helps redeem the land or they've been sold into slavery and he redeems them out of slavery. He even can uh, re take revenge on harm done, those kinds of things. That's what a kinsman or redeemer, goel, is. And it's obvious that in verse 10, he raised no objection to her assumption that he was a kinsman redeemer. In fact, he praised her loyalty to her family because as uh, by appealing to this law of Goel, of the redeemer, her move was all about benefiting Naomi. You know, Naomi in chapter three, verse one, she's concerned for Ruth just that Ruth could have a husband, but Ruth is concerned about Naomi's future. An impressive act of devotion by Ruth to Naomi, uh, because as we'll get to, she didn't go after the younger men. She went after what a future would be for Naomi. So remarkable initiative and defiance of custom. And in this, the writer wants us to see that she embodies the Israelite ideal of, of, of steadfast love, chesed, the Hebrew word chesed, kindness and sacrifice. She was living out what it meant to be, uh, to be other centered. But actually, she's also setting herself up to be the bringer of salvation in this story as she will bear a child that in a sense brings redemption for Naomi. And in all of this, she's really showing herself to be worthy of full membership in Israel. Uh, and this is certainly a theme of interest to the storyteller, a Moabite becoming an Israelite, a full blown Israelite. Well, you get to verse 10 and his response, we've kind of hinted at it already, but immediately, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first in that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. That means you've not uh, gone after love or money. Um, so it shows that he had by calling her my daughter, he was not misled by the ambiguity of a woman at his feet. Uh, he, he certainly was not going to take advantage of, of her. And instead, he declared that he's ready to take this risk that marriage to Ruth is going to entail because it will cost him social, uh, socially and financially. It, to, to, it will cost him, at least on the surface, to marry this foreign woman and, and to have a family with her. That was not a common story in, in Israel. Um, but he is, the, because the Moabites were despised outsiders and it was only by steps, only by proving out her faithfulness that she won over the community. 
It reminds me of what we read this morning in 1 Peter 2, where in a context in which people uh, hated Christians and were making up stuff about Christians, uh, Peter says, you keep doing good to these people and they'll, by God's grace, they may change their tune and begin to glorify God, realizing uh, these people are not what, they, what I thought they were. This Moabite's not what I thought she would be. She's as good or she's better than we are. She is faithful to Yahweh. And this is a foreshadowing in many ways of the Gentiles being brought into uh, the salvation of Messiah, uh, which was really hard for Peter and the gang to get their heads around (laughs) that full-blown Gentiles were going to belong to Messiah, that they just did not have that on their radar screen. But that's another story. <clears throat> but he, he mentions this idea of the younger men. The, the, a younger man would have had better prospects of providing more children that were her own uh, and give her more significance personally. But this child would belong, it would belong to her, of course, and to Boaz. But in a sense, it would belong to Naomi. It would be Naomi's child, Naomi's redemption. This was an act for Naomi. Um, She knew that Boaz, as a man of character, could be counted upon to take care of Naomi as well as her. And Boaz saw Ruth's adoption of Naomi's plan as another act of covenant faithfulness on Ruth's part. Uh, So just as Ruth had left her own household and family to be with Naomi, so now she's following this dangerous plan, even though it was at great personal risk. She was a a woman of real character. A concern was Naomi's care and not children. And in, in verse 10, it implies that God himself stood behind this episode when he says, may you be blessed by the Lord. The writer wants us to associate this with God's blessing, God's presence, God's will is being carried out through the crazy plan of Naomi and the faithfulness of Ruth uh, to support her mother-in-law. So he's basically saying all along you've shown forth kindness and now your kindness is larger than ever. You could have gone for the young, vigorous, handsome, exciting men, but you didn't do it. You didn't go after the town's eligible bachelors. Uh, You didn't act from passion or greed. She disregarded those personal preferences and chose a marriage that would benefit her family. And so in that sense, she's truly the Philippians 2 girl, uh, counting others as more important than than herself. Loyal to her mother-in-law, a widow who had no standing in Israelite society. Caring about her protection, her security, her future. Honor and doing what was right. So in using the word, as he says, kindness here, it's that word kesed that's so often associated with Yahweh uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, there's There's a purposeful association of it with the steadfast love of God. And so the writer is communicating that God's 
steadfast love is being manifested by this Moabite woman who's risked everything to come to Israel and find shelter under Yahweh. She's come to the land of Israel showing forth Yahweh's kindness to the people of Israel. She's like a missionary to the Israelites from Moab, manifesting Yahweh's love, an ambassador of the steadfast love of Yahweh. A stunning moment in Old Testament history. I know I've said this to some of you, but uh, years ago in when we lived in Fort Worth, I heard a Jewish uh, rabbi say something about this group, Jews for Jesus, whom you may be familiar with. Jews for Jesus, they are Christians and they're seeking to win other Jews for Jesus. And he made the unfortunate comment, there's no such thing as Jews for Jesus. Now think of how, what's wrong with that statement. There's no such thing as Jews for Jesus. Well, okay, well, start with Jesus. He's a Jew, okay? Start with the apostles. They're all Jews. Start with the hundreds of disciples on Pentecost. They were all Jews. In fact, it took to chapter 9 and 10 for Peter to realize, and God had to do it through a vision. And he, then he did it as he was speaking to the Gentiles that the, the angel directed him to. The Holy Spirit fell upon those Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles, just like he did in Acts chapter 2. It was then that Peter's like, Duh. you know, which I would have been too. You mean you want to save them too before they're circumcised? I mean, that's what it took for people to realize there could be Gentiles for Jesus. Because from the beginning, it was like, it's all going to be Jews for Jesus. It'll be circumcised and they'll belong to Messiah. And this is the new Judaism. We're with now our Messiah who's come. So here is an early Gentile for Yahweh, kind of a precursor of what really became the church eventually is mainly Gentiles bringing the Jewish Messiah to the world. So I think that's a pretty slick thing that's happening here. Well, in verse 11, <clears throat> Basically, this well-to-do landowner, Boaz, declares he will be the servant of this destitute Moabite because he tells her, now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. He says, I will serve all your needs. Um, and interestingly, his words in verse 11 echo her words in verse five, all that you say I will do, she said to Naomi. And now Boaz is saying that to Ruth. She's not a foreigner anymore. She's got the highest character, no matter where she came from. And it's obvious he regards her as a woman on his level, as having his status as an Israelite. And Matthew, in his opening, and many of you know this, but in his opening genealogy, includes P. 
people to show what's coming in his gospel. And what's coming in his gospel is the announcement that the gospel is going out to all the world to include Gentiles as well as Jews. And he peppers the genealogy with people outside of Israel, like Rahab, the, uh, the, the prostitute in uh, Jericho. And he peppers it with Ruth, the Moabitess, who became the, the great-grandmother of David. But it's interesting how he, he didn't have to mention these women. He didn't have to. You usually do a genealogy with men, but on purpose, he says, Ruth, Rahab, uh, the wife of Solomon, you know. So these, I mean, uh, of, uh, of David. So he's, he's letting us know that this story is going to be about people from outside coming in and belonging to Yahweh through Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Boaz in chapter two, verse one is called a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. And here he says to her, uh, the fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Same word that uh, describe him. Now he uses it to describe Ruth. She's earned her status then as Boaz peer. She's fully qualified to marry him. It's a worthy woman meeting a worthy man, a great match. Uh, and her reputation had really neutralized all objections to her marrying an Israelite. Uh, and this indicates the, the community beginning to accept her. Uh, and it might point to other outsiders coming as well into here. Um, so he, he, as it says, he refused to move forward. And so there's this little curveball. We're like, ready? He says, they know you're a worthy woman. I'm going to do everything you've asked. Uh, but I'm not the closest redeemer, 12 and 13. Um, and he, he invites her to lodge with him. That's the same word that Ruth used in the first chapter. So it's, it has no overtones, sexual overtones uh, whatsoever. Um, but there's this emphasis on her integrity. Uh, Proverbs 12, 4 says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness to his bones. Or Proverbs 31, An excellent wife who can find. She's far more precious than jewels. And in Proverbs 31, it says that she, uh, her works praise her in the gates. Literally here in verse 11, it says, All the gate of my people knows you're a woman of worth. So uh, she is precisely a Proverbs 31 woman. And actually in the Hebrew, language, uh, Hebrew Bible, uh, Ruth comes right after Proverbs. In fact, there are just a couple of chapters separating this. So it would be ringing in your ears if you've just read Proverbs 31 of the worthy woman. And then you see Ruth. It's, she's living it out right here. And she happens to be a Moabite, not an Israelite originally. So uh, the surprising complication of the other redeemer, one more piece of drama 
and it shows his character. He's, he's the kind of person that David might uh, descend from because he's going to be honorable here in this, in this case. Um, and of course, we want him to be the redeemer. That's what the audience wants. The audience would prefer, how about you, Boaz, not this other guy. We don't even know who this other guy is. Um, but uh, nonetheless, that's what's going to have to happen here. Um, it brings out the providence of God in that we're all going to have to see God's brought them to this place. Let's see how God brings it forward. Let's see how, see how God works it out uh, from here. Um, one little tidbit that's interesting is, is when he says, I'm redeemer, yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. Uh, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, literally it means if he is not delighted to redeem you. Showing that Boaz was delighted. And so he naturally used that word um, that, of, of how he felt about the whole thing. It's interesting how his uh, subjecting himself to Yahweh's punishment as the Lord lives, that's a way to say, will the Lord do to me or punish me if I don't do this, if I don't redeem you? It echoes Ruth's words, you know, may the Lord do to me if I don't fulfill this. I mean, they just line up again and again in, in, in how they are. I think if they were doing an e-harmony, they would have probably been matched, uh, these two, because they were both of such amazing uh, character. It ends in 14 through 18 with these... Uh, with his protecting her, giving her this grain so that if anybody stops her, they can say, well, they, she must have gotten up in the morning. Maybe she slept on the floor working late, uh, but it, it's a way to protect her. But more importantly, it's a statement to uh, Naomi, a statement of abundance, a statement. Some would even point to the six. I'm not so sure about that, but it may be. Uh, a point, the six points to labor. It points to six days you shall work uh, because the six is repeated twice. But at least he is saying to her, uh, there is an abundance awaiting you. There is relief awaiting you. There is provision awaiting you. It's almost like he, uh, she's bringing home, these are the first fruits from Boaz. He wants to take care of us. He wants to buy your land for you and return it to you. Uh, she was having to sell the land to make ends meet and he was going to redeem that land and let her have it for good. And this is a way for him to, to tell her uh, everything is going to be okay. You're going to be cared for. There is rest awaiting you. There is care awaiting you. Now, one final reflection here. Uh, this covering, this corner of a wing that he used to, to cover her it's interesting how it's used in uh, Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16 is at least a PG-13 uh, version of God taking Israel to himself. And in verse 8, it says this, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. It's a graphic picture of Israel in her absolute helplessness being taken in by God. She was there in her blood, helpless, 
couldn't do anything. And he threw his garment over her to protect her and take her to himself. And it's all the more for us. We come to him as Ruth came to Boaz, but we're not so noble as Ruth was. We're foreigners, all right. We are, in Paul's words, by nature, alienated from God. We were lying down with the enemy of God. We had a different allegiance. Our allegiance was to self and not to God. It was to ourselves and not others. That's how you sign the enlistment papers to become one who, in Paul's words, is held captive to do the devil's will. Every human being, by nature, is held captive to do the devil's will. We have enlisted by turning our backs from God. We have enlisted with Satan himself. If you serve yourself, if you live for yourself, you live for Satan. That's where God found us. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's where he found us in the red light district. That's where we all were. There's nobody not there. Okay. That's where he finds his people. And then as he speaks of Ruth having come under the protecting wings of God in chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz is speaking from his own experience. He's under the protecting, uh, protecting wings of Yahweh himself. He's able to provide a covering because he has tasted God's covering. And of course, as you've heard before, Christ is the true kinsman redeemer who took on our situation, who became like us, who, who took us as his brothers and sisters, becoming responsible for our well-being, becoming responsible for our salvation and our happiness. Paul says in Philippians 2 that he counted us as more important than himself. He took our place. He took on our responsibility for sin and paid the penalty for our sin. He lost everything that we might gain everything. What a kinsman redeemer to so associate himself with us that he takes our punishment, we take his reward. And surely he threw the corner of his cloak over us. He put his wing over us. He took himself, us for himself and devoted himself for our good. And I just want to say, he will throw his cloak over you as well. And if you don't realize it, please do. You need his cloak. You need his care. You need his forgiveness. You need him to govern you and, and support you and be with you all your days and bring you to the new creation that he will bring to this world one day. You will find all you need under his wings. You and I need to be like Ruth, right? And say to Christ, Spring, spread your wings over me. You, you are my redeemer. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how we thank you for taking us to yourself. How we thank you for how you suffered. Uh, Boaz paid some financial and social costs, but Lord, you gave up your very life. 
you bore the punishment for our sins. To be our kinsman redeemer was infinitely costly for you. And yet, we read in Hebrews that for the joy set before you, you suffered these things. The joy of fulfilling your Father's will. The joy of bringing us to yourself and having us forever. Oh Lord, how could you look at us, your enemies, and contemplate dying for us and giving us, your enemies, your kingdom? Oh Lord, thank you for such grace and such mercy. May we rejoice in you and honor you and serve you with all of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.